Welcome to the Abbott Speaks Podcast. I am your host, Michael Abbott Jr. Today's program represents the fifth installment of our social media series explaining why I believe social media is the gravest threat facing modern American culture. Thus far, the series has spanned over four hours in duration with at least two episodes to go. When all is said and done, I will air at least six installments that fully support my position, not to mention the three-episode prequel, if you will, which laid the foundation and premise of my entire argument. Nine total installments, six of which are defending my position. I plan to round it up to an even ten by offering my first-ever Abbott Speaks prediction, but as eager as I am to have fun with the future, I have a lot of work to do before I can turn my attention to somewhat of a more leisurely program. Being mindful of the swelling content in this survey, I condensed the entire series down to a simple 15-minute summary on last week's program entitled Facebook, a Marketplace for Cultural Narcissism. If you're new to the program, please listen to my brief recap from last week so you can appreciate the broad overview of my entire argument. Of course, you'll want to take in all the episodes when time permits, but for now, just know I'm thankful you've decided to be part of tonight's program. Today, we will proceed with the fifth installment of our series. In installment one, we learned how social media redefines and ultimately downgrades human exchange by discounting the healing power of the human touch. In installment two, we learned how social media acts as a technological drug. In installment three, we learned why social media causes us to abandon the wise counsel of our elders in favor of the impressionable, idealistic impulses of our youngest generation. In installment four, we learned how social media inspires and promotes narcissism in our culture. This week, we will explore how social media disengages the power of the human mind. I don't think I've ever been more excited to bring a program to you than I am today. I've spent probably 40 working hours developing this content. I've entitled today's episode, Facebook Automates Thought. Your one-hour road to wisdom begins right now. One of the most popular computer games at the turn of the century was a game called The Sims. The Sims was a life simulation game in which the player created virtual people called Sims and placed them in houses and helped direct their moods and satisfy their desires. Sims would age through seven life stages from infancy to old age before reaching death. Over the course of their virtual lives, each Sim exhibited wants and fears according to his or her aspirations and personalities. The level of the aspiration meter determined the effectiveness of a Sim at completing tasks. The fulfillment of wants provided aspiration points, which could then be used to purchase aspiration rewards. The game featured clear days of the week with weekends when children stayed home from school and even vacation days when adults could take time off of work. The video game became a franchise that has sold nearly 200 million copies worldwide, and it is one of the best-selling video game series of all time. Why was The Sims so popular? It's because it allowed human beings to play the role of God. The Sims gave computer players the ability to oversee virtual communities, using their personal judgment to solve the day-to-day problems of creatures they would never actually meet in real life. It was a world subject to their dominion. 
I want to read you the opening paragraph of Mark Zuckerberg's comments from Facebook's fourth quarter earnings call. Publicly traded companies generally host a quarterly earnings call, and the results of these emphasize the overall performance of the business. However, they also provide highly meaningful information about the business and especially the perspectives of executive management. Here's what Mark had to say just a couple of months ago. Thanks everyone for joining us today. 2017 was a strong year for Facebook in many ways. Our community continues to grow with more than 2.1 billion people now using Facebook every month and 1.4 billion people using it daily. Our business grew 47% year over year to $40 billion. I'm proud of the progress that our team has made and the ways that Facebook is helping people around the world. Giving people a voice who didn't have one before, strengthening relationships by helping family and friends stay connected wherever they are, and enabling more than 70 million small businesses to grow and create jobs. There is so much symbolism in the spoken word. Remember in the first installment of this series how I told you that I wanted to start defending my perspective on social media with my strongest argument. I was most eager to talk to you about how social media is redefining human contact right before our very eyes. More than anything, this is the strongest reason why social media is a threat to our culture. The primary means of communication for most Americans born after 1990 features a virtual exchange of ideas and emotions. My social media series exists because I perceive this to be a quantum plunge in human communication, and I'm eager to warn anyone who will listen. Anyway, what were the first words out of Mark Zuckerberg's mouth when explaining Facebook's performance? Our community. During the call, he used the term community a total of 15 times, and he even used the term ecosystem a total of four times. Just to be clear, an ecosystem is a biological community of interacting organisms and their physical environment. Again, words have extraordinary significance. It is not a stretch to suggest that Mark Zuckerberg has faith in Facebook's ability to represent life and perhaps even the world to people. Just look at his word choices. I wholeheartedly disagree with Mark Zuckerberg, as you know, but I will admit, Facebook can mimic life. Just as is the case with the real world, Facebook's surrogate form of community is replete with problems. This quarterly earnings call happened to coincide with allegations of Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. We've already discussed one of the other problems that coincided with the quarterly earnings call, that being the onset of depression with what Facebook executives consider to be passive content consumption. I'd like to draw your attention to the symbolism behind Zuckerberg's other opening remark. Within the first 30 seconds of speaking, he said this, and please listen carefully. Facebook is helping people around the world, giving people a voice who didn't have one before, strengthening relationships by helping family and friends stay connected wherever they are, and enabling more than 70 million small businesses to grow and create jobs. Let's unpack that just a bit. If we were to use the literal interpretation of his own words, Mark Zuckerberg believes that his community or his ecosystem gives people the means to speak, families the means to engage, 
and businesses the means to create jobs. Mark Zuckerberg literally said, were it not for Facebook, people would not have a voice. The relationships between friends and families would weaken, and 70 million small businesses could not grow or create jobs. Those aren't my words. They're his. In The Sims, the player would identify problems in the virtual world subject to his oversight, and he would use his best judgment to personally address as many of these as humanly possible to satisfy their desires and help the virtual community thrive consistent with the player's ideals and vision. That was the allure of the game. What human being doesn't want to lord over subjects, be it nobly or callously? On Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg wants his virtual community to thrive consistent with his ideals and vision, too. But unlike The Sims, Mark Zuckerberg does not have the ability to personally intervene in the affairs of every last member of his community. The problems of Facebook, unfortunately, are far too great for one individual to manage. How does one go about managing the unmanageable? Today, I'd like to introduce you to one of the strongest and most influential tools on the planet. It's the Facebook complex network of algorithms. Computer programmers use algorithms to instantly process massive amounts of data using a defined set of rules to ultimately solve a problem. In the case of Facebook, this problem is the user's finite amount of time. Since most users do not spend hours and hours coming through every last Facebook status update, the company wants to ensure the time spent on the platform is valuable, meaningful, and relevant to their users' lives. To accomplish this goal, Facebook's analytical team has assembled a number of algorithms to automatically sort this data based on what they believe you will find of greatest interest. To prepare your mind to best understand the concept of an algorithm, I want to present you with the most significant problem Facebook has to resolve over 2 billion times a day. It is because of this problem that any of these algorithms exist in the first place. Let's say you have 400 Facebook friends and you follow 50 various national or community organizations. Now, examples of these might be CNN, Fox News, your local TV news affiliate, Starbucks, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Disney, your PTO, Target, and, I don't know, a local Italian restaurant that runs some kind of buy-one-get-one sale every month. You get the point. Brands post an average of eight times per day, while the average user posts between one and two times per day. If you run the math, your personal Facebook community is submitting a 1,000 new posts to Facebook every single day. And that gives no consideration to marketers who are submitting paid advertisements finding you to be in their target demographic. This is one of the elemental problems facing Mark Zuckerberg's virtual community. Who organizes and prioritizes the content that you see? Whose post lands at the top of your Facebook wall? This problem has to be solved, but none of Facebook's employees trouble themselves with the management of this mundane task. The task of manually sifting through all of this information is simply not feasible. So therefore, the company relies upon tens or even hundreds of thousands of lines of complex coding to automatically sort this information. 
This artificial machine intelligence is known as a series of algorithms. I'm sure you are just like me, anxious to answer the million dollar question. So how do they work? Well, that's complicated. You see, Facebook considers that to be proprietary information. You're about as likely to crack that as you are to uncover the recipe of the Coca-Cola soft drink. Facebook holds it under lock and key with considerable surveillance. Given its importance, does the American public have the right to know the secret sauce, so to speak? No, Facebook is a private company. Nobody's forcing the American people to use its services. But the American public would be wise to perform a bit of due diligence here. Since over 60% of millennials use Facebook as a political news source, according to a recent Pew Research Center poll, we have a responsibility as American citizens to understand to the best of our ability how these algorithms work to deliver the news. Coca-Cola will never release its recipe, but the side of every can contains all the ingredients. We can use that information on a Coca-Cola soft drink to determine how suitable the beverage is for our personal consumption. In similar fashion, if we do our homework regarding the ingredients of Facebook's network of algorithms, my hope is that you can use the information I plan to share with you today to help determine how suitable Facebook is for your personal intellectual or news consumption. Although Facebook will never reveal its algorithm, their VP of Newsfeed, a man named Adam Mossery, revealed a glimpse into how the company seeks to solve the surplus content problem during last year's annual developer conference. Mossery explained that Facebook uses a four-step process to rank and prioritize the content that is created on their platform. To illustrate this, he presented the real-life problem of a husband deciding what to order his wife at a restaurant. Step 1. The husband takes a menu from the restaurant. The menu features every entree available for consumption. Step 2. The husband analyzes the restaurant's offerings vis-a-vis -vis the time of day, his wife's other tastes, and other diners' past experiences. Step 3. The husband predicts what she would like to eat, and step four, the husband places his wife's order. Mossery then explained that by the husband activating his mental capacity in placing his wife's order, he's essentially executing an algorithm in his head. He used this analogy to explain that Facebook's algorithms are essentially doing the same thing. It's just an automated process. Step one for the Facebook algorithms would be to see what's on the menu. When you first open your newsfeed, the algorithms take an inventory by looking at all of the stories posted by your friends and the pages that you follow, much in the same fashion that the husband checks to see all of the entrees on the restaurant menu. Step two for the Facebook algorithms is to consider all of the available data and use signals to bring the choice posts to the top of the feed. Some of these signals are as follows. Who posted the story? the frequency of posts from the person, previous negative feedback on the author, audience engagement, average time spent on content, overall engagement a post already has, when the story was posted, friend tags, recent friend comments, type of story, completeness of the poster's Facebook profile, whether the post was from a friend or a page, and how informative the post is. In a restaurant, 
think of the chef's choice entrees here. Step three for Facebook's algorithms is to predict how likely you are to comment on a story, share the story, spend time reading the story, and so forth. In the restaurant analogy, I guess consider the husband's anticipation of what his wife would enjoy as based on maybe the Yelp reviews of these restaurant offerings. And step four is the conclusion of the algorithmic process where each individual post is given a relevance score. This is the calculated number that represents how interested Facebook thinks you will be in a given story or post. What I think is worthy of mention here is that Mossery confessed this is an educated guess at best. Facebook doesn't truly ever know how interested you will be in a story. The algorithms simply try to predict what content that you will want to see in your newsfeed, just as the husband finalizes his decision on which entree he thinks his wife will best enjoy. He doesn't actually know. So all that sounds pretty harmless, right? Well, I should hope it would. I mean, you need to remember you're listening to an executive of the company preaching the merits of his information aggregating system. This is little more than a sales pitch. Of course he's going to equate the user's experience on Facebook as being akin to a fine dining experience. I don't know about you, but if I'm seeking helpful critiques on the utility of an enterprise, I'm not typically running to the firm's executives for objective information. One of the pesky inconveniences of adulthood is the responsibility to independently deploy critical thinking skills. And pretty soon, you're going to find this is a basic competency that social media is in the market of suppressing at every turn. Today, I would like to engineer a figurative train ride through the land of thought automation. Typically, any time I introduce a new term, in this case, thought automation, I like to spend some time defining the concept. In this instance, however, I'm just going to ask for your trust because the illustrations I have to share will do a far better job than any cursory overview I could ever provide. So get yourself seated because our train is officially departing the station. We will make three stops on today's voyage, at which point I have a feeling you'll have a pretty solid grasp on what I mean by the automation of thought. As we prepare ourselves for our first stop, I want to remind you that I see great value to engaging in critical thought, like I just said, doing my own research. In keeping with my civic responsibility as an adult, one of the people I consulted during my research was Eli Pariser, the author of a book called The Filter Bubble, What the Internet is Hiding from You. Pariser takes a bit broader of a view than I do since his emphasis is on the entire internet, whereas my current series is narrowly targeting the segment of internet communication known as social media. Pariser actually gave a TED Talk on the subject of his book, and he channeled his conversation into the process of how information flows online. Pariser explains, and I'll quote from his transcript now, There's this shift in how information is flowing online, and it's invisible. And if we don't pay attention to it, it could be a real problem. So I first noticed this in a place I spend a lot of time, my Facebook page. I'm progressive politically, big surprise, but I've always gone out of my way to meet conservatives. I like hearing what they, they're thinking about. I like seeing what they link to. I like learning a thing or two. And so I was surprised when I noticed one day that the conservatives had disappeared from my Facebook feed. 
And what it turned out was going on was that Facebook was looking at which links I clicked on and it was noticing that actually I was clicking more on my liberal friends links than on my conservative friends links. And without consulting me about it, it had simply edited them out. They disappeared, end quote. In 2017, Facebook averaged roughly 1.3 billion daily active users over the course of the year. By designing the algorithms in this fashion, Facebook's coding selectively edited diverse opinions out of its users' news feeds every single day last year. You know I like to do math, so let's do a little math, shall we? Considering there were 365 days in the calendar year, and each day over 1.3 billion people were accessing Facebook, the diversity-loving Facebook, through the power of its own algorithms, actually suppressed intellectual diversity nearly half a trillion times just last year alone. Half a trillion opportunities for people to be exposed to an opposing perspective. Gone. If you expand the scope to cover the last three years, the subtotal rises to over one trillion. To those 60% of millennials that get their news from social media, do you really feel you can pursue wisdom, understanding, or discernment inside of a virtual filter bubble? So what is a filter bubble? It is the intellectual isolation that can occur when websites make use of algorithms to selectively assume the information a user would want to see and then give information to the user according to this assumption. That was pretty heavy. Let me repeat that. A filter bubble is the intellectual isolation that can occur when websites make use of algorithms to selectively assume the information a user would want to see and then give information to the user according to this assumption. Pariser coined the phrase in his book, explaining that a filter bubble is, quote, your own personal unique universe of information that you live in online. It depends on who you are, and it depends on what you do. But the thing is that you don't decide what gets in. And more importantly, you don't actually see what gets edited out, end quote. My question is this, how much poorer is American culture as a result of this automated suppression of thought? Pariser succinctly explained this phenomenon as an invisible algorithmic editing of the web. This brings our train to the first stop on our tour through how Facebook automates thought. Critical takeaway number one from today's program, social media promotes echo chambers. Instead of facilitating an information environment in which consumers can garner wide exposure to diverse information, it subjects them to narrow filter bubbles based on how a computer perceives their personal preferences. It suppresses and withholds viewpoints that dissent from their own, and it reinforces perspectives held by the social media user. In the case of Pariser, it reduced his exposure to the opinions of his conservative contacts while elevating the ideas championed by his liberal friends. It does not promote the overall best link or best news story, just the link or news story that some heartless algorithm believes to be best for him. 
Facebook manipulates and distorts your perception of public opinion on your personal page every single day. In my opinion, social media is the number one reason we have become almost irreconcilably polarized as a culture. Perhaps my favorite quote from Pariser was given on an interview on the George Soros-funded Democracy Now! internet television platform. When discussing the articles that internet news sites funnel to the top of the page, Pariser explained, you're really just surrounded by empty calories, by information junk food. That's certainly a far cry from Facebook's contention that it acts as a fine dining establishment for information. When you access platforms like Facebook or Twitter, you need to begin thinking of each encounter as a transaction. You are signing in to seek updated information regarding your friends, family, and even the world. It might feel like it's free and it doesn't cost you anything, but that's anything but the truth. You're paying for each experience in the form of up-to-the-minute updates on your own personal thoughts, your own desires, your whereabouts, and even your browsing history. Social media algorithms update their records on you multiple times a day, and they use this new information to refine what they choose to show everyone in your network. You sign on seeking information, but in actuality, the information is desperately seeking you. Since Facebook and Twitter are American businesses, it can be easy to look at ourselves as individuals who are consuming informative content on these respective sites. But when you access social media, you're not the consumer. You're the product being sold. These firms are nothing more than data mining corporations engaged in the business of gathering as much information about you as possible and then selling it off to the highest bidder on the open market. I'll return to this concept of optimizing advertisement revenues later in the program. But for now, let's depart from the first station on our tour through the Facebook virtual railway of thought automation. Much of our journey to the second stop features commentary that will be political in nature, so I want to be clear at the outset. I loathe both political parties. I see the choice between Democrat and Republican boiling down to a preference between whether you'd rather be abandoned or betrayed. Facebook has an obvious political leaning, as you'll see, but none of my commentary features a lamentation about some desire that the country was either more Republican or more Democrat. Both parties advance the gospel of secular humanism, or the idea that man is God, and man has evolved beyond any need for a savior. Our choice, in actuality, is between the party that sprints away from the truth, or the party that maintains a steady jog. The one thing you can count on in every election cycle is that the American people are going to lose. It's just a matter of how bad. As we make our way to this second station, I need to return to subjects we've discussed on earlier segments of the social media series. I hope you've taken them in. Those being the topics of peer validation and impressionability. Between 2008 and 2014, Facebook ran a series of experiments designed to understand how its platform can influence the voting behavior of its users. In an experiment during the 2010 midterm election cycle, the company put two different forms of an I'm voting badge on the pages of about 60 million American users. 
Company researchers were testing the versions to understand the effects of each and to determine how to optimize the tool's overall impact. You would be wise not to forget this experiment and its purpose. We will return to it when we wrap up our social media series. But here's how the experiment worked. Two groups of 600,000 users were left out of the 60 million to serve as a control group. One group of 600,000 saw the I'm voting button without receiving any information about their friend's behavior, while the other group of 600,000 saw nothing related to voting at all. So what was the result of the 61 million user experiment? Positive social pressure nudged voter turnout in the 2010 midterm election by at least 340,000 votes. The Facebook researching team wrote, when publishing their experiment on Nature magazine, more of the growth and turnout between the 2006 and 2010 elections might have been caused by a single message on Facebook. The company replicated the same experiment in the 2012 election cycle, finding that their nudging influence increased voter turnout by an additional 270,000 voters. Facebook's election experiments tested for the optimal placement of the I Voted badge. They gathered data regarding the time of day these messages were disseminated on a user's feed. They also compared users receiving the I Voted badge on its own, as opposed to users who received the I Voted badge with the accompanying thumbnails of all of their friends who also noted that they voted in the election. Unsurprisingly, when users saw how many friends in their own network voted, they themselves were mobilized into action as well. Facebook is just one arm of social media, but this study shows that it has an influential impact that is massive. What if this powerful utility were controlled at the hands of somebody with an agenda, someone who isn't impartial, or even someone who wants to suppress the vote? How would we ever know about it? Here's what I do know. Facebook never alerted any of its 61 million American users to the fact that they were being treated as subjects in a series of social experimentations. And this is the second takeaway from our fifth installment of the social media series. Social media commoditizes people. This is social engineering through the power of artificial intelligence. Facebook has the power of treating the American people as cattle and herding them in a direction that might conflict with their personal desires and even the potential welfare of our country. The cattle herding process extended into 2016 as multiple news sites, including the Washington Post, Huffington Post, and The Federalist, reported that former Facebook workers admitted to routinely suppressing stories of interest to conservative news readers. And it continues even to this day, just last month. Facebook tweaked its algorithm in a move that will ultimately make it harder for news publishers to do business on the platform. You gotta listen to this story. Two of Facebook's executives participated in a media conference in Huntington Beach, California just last month to discuss how the company will now be presenting news to the American public. Participating on the panel discussion were VP of Newsfeed Adam Mossery, who I've already introduced you to, and the current head of Facebook's news partnerships team, a woman named Campbell Brown. Brown was a former news anchor on both NBC and CNN. Listen to her response to the question that Facebook's tweaking of their algorithm will make it harder for news publishers to do business on Facebook. Listen to this. Quote, I think news organizations should be just thinking differently about their relationship with Facebook. 
This is not us stepping back from news. This is us changing our relationship with publishers and emphasizing something that Facebook has never done before. It's having a point of view, and it's leaning into quality news. So if Mark Zuckerberg and Adam Mossery are thinking about time well spent over time spent on the platform, the correlation for that on the news side is that we are for the first time in the history of Facebook taking a step to try to define what quality news looks like and give that a boost so that overall there's less competition from news, end quote. Facebook settling into a self-appointed role as the arbiter of what it refers to as credible or quality news. As Brown said, her company is having a point of view, leaning into the news, giving its preferential choices a boost, and decreasing the overall amount of competition in the marketplace. Again, her words, not mine. Not only does Facebook want to be the arbiter, but they're also seeking to be the gatekeeper regarding how this country gets its news. There's only one problem. Well, actually two. First, there's no separation of powers whatsoever. But second, the core qualification for holding either position, arbiter or gatekeeper, the core qualification for holding either position in the culture is maintaining a distinct impartiality and independence in the process. This is a power grab. Time and again, Facebook has proven to be neither impartial nor independent. This philosophical change in methodology was embedded into their February 2018 algorithm overhaul, which you'll recall the company found necessary following news reports that passive information consumption could be harmful for a user's mental health. Can you see the parallels between Washington politics and Silicon Valley elitism here? On Capitol Hill, politicians publicly sell the merits of addressing a public issue, but then they stuff a bunch of pork in the bill to benefit their insiders. Well, in at least this instance, in Silicon Valley, technical developers publicly sell the merits of addressing a public issue, but then they stuff a little juice into the algorithm to benefit their chosen elites too. So what are the early results, you ask? Conservative publishers have lost an average of nearly 14% of their traffic from Facebook, while liberal publishers have gained about 2% more web traffic from Facebook than they were getting prior to any algorithm change. A New York Daily News headline entitled, Blood is on the Hands of NRA Puppets, garnered a 24% increase in Facebook traffic, while Breitbart, a conservative-leaning site, reported that algorithmic changes to users' news feeds caused engagements on President Trump's Facebook page to drop by 45%. A story covered by The Outline found that the engagement of Fox News had taken a hit, while mainstream sites like CNN and The New York Times were simply unaffected. If you're still not entirely convinced, after four and a half episodes, that Facebook has thrown all ethical judgment to the wind... Let me share one more eye-opening experiment the company performed on its users in January of 2012. To test its own scientific hypothesis regarding the concept of emotional contagion, Facebook executives championed a study with the express purpose of manipulating the emotional state of users. Now, I know what you're thinking. Michael, you're crazy. Facebook wouldn't do that. No one would consciously do that. If you really believe this, you have to be a new listener. 
I've been spouting that power and control is the logical end of secular humanism for a year now. This is the darkness that lives within every one of us. This is what you need to appreciate when you hear the terms progress and moving forward. Yes, we are progressing. And yes, we are moving forward. But we're just moving forward to an advanced state of darkness due to our gradual loosening of any moral or ethical standards as a culture. As the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. So in the event you don't believe me, that's fine. But go ahead and Google Facebook mood manipulation next time you're online. You will find this coverage story on PBS, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and plenty of others. What I'm about to share with you is 100% true. For one week in January of 2012, Facebook data scientists skewed what almost 700,000 Facebook users saw when they logged into the platform. Some people were shown content with a preponderance of happy or positive words, while some were shown content analyzed as sadder than average. And when the week was over, these manipulated users were more likely to post either especially positive or negative words themselves. More negative news feeds led to more negative status messages, and more positive news feeds led to more positive status updates. As far as the study was concerned, this meant that Facebook had shown that, quote, emotional states can be transferred to others via emotional contagion, leading people to experience the same emotions without their awareness, end quote. Facebook touted that this emotional contagion can be achieved without any direct interaction between people. Of course, the experiment provided yet another fire for the company's PR team to douse. Are you seeing the trend here? But Facebook's number two executive, Sheryl Sandberg, communicated no remorse, no apology, no apology whatsoever for the corporate research project. The only thing she said she was sorry for was the poor company communication of the experiment. In other words, she was sorry that she had to deal with a PR nightmare. She was sorry because she was personally inconvenienced. As far as treating hundreds of thousands of human beings as unwitting lab rats, she couldn't be moved to even admit this might have been a lapse in judgment. Remember how The Sims gave the computer gamer the ability to direct the moods of his or her virtual community? Well, it seems that Mark Zuckerberg's virtual community is no different. As I share these words with you, I'm reminded of the countless guidance I've received from contacts, colleagues, and others who wish me well with my ambitions as a voice in postmodern America. And I, I'm thankful for it. I really am. But I actually have a chance here to actually respond publicly to all of your well wishes and your advice. Because I have had numerous people criticize me for downright abandoning my social media presence. You need Facebook. How can you grow without Facebook? Don't you want to get your voice out there? This is my official position. I don't need a public relations manager to articulate it since I can very competently speak for myself. If God wants to expand the influence power of my voice, I'm sure he can find a way to make that happen. Maybe he'll do that through you. Maybe you'll reach out to somebody and share my voice. Don't think I'm not trying to do the same thing myself. But in the meantime, I've simply grown tired of being treated like one of Mark Zuckerberg's virtual sims. As a reminder, you are taking the social media train through the world of automated thoughts. We've thus far traveled 
to the station where social media promotes echo chambers, and we are now departing the station where social media commoditizes people, treats them like cattle. Before I unveil the third and final stop on our brief ride, I want to return our discussion to step two of Facebook's four-step process of ranking and prioritizing content. Remember the signals for elevating a post to the top of the feed? Things like who made the post, audience engagement, when the story was posted, things like that. In this capacity, Facebook and friends essentially construct a colossal barrier for entry for any participants desirous of offering alternative points of view. If you are a new voice, you're simply unable to satisfy the frequency of posting signal. You're unable to highlight audience engagement. You have no comments. Your site has no statistical average time spent on organically created content. If this is your story, you were one of the voices that Facebook selectively edited out of user news feeds nearly half a trillion times last year. How do I know? Because I'm talking about myself. I launched the Abbott Speaks podcast in April of last year, almost a year ago now. And like many new startups, I headed to Facebook in hopes of building my brand, marketing my intellectual property, and sharing a new perspective with my fellow countrymen. I was active on Facebook for roughly eight months last year, which means Facebook's virtual palette spit my content out of its mouth for 240 days in 2017. I would say I averaged probably around 1,500 followers over that period. So we're actually talking about 360,000 unique occurrences in which my content was pushed to the back of the line. Now, allow me to explain. But before I do, I, I do need you to forgive me for using myself as an example. I don't mean to call attention to myself, but it is a great illustration for a new voice. And I just happen to be a new voice. And I have the statistics of my Facebook feed. I would like to share four examples of my own social media experience on Facebook to illustrate a third consequence to our substantial reliance on Facebook's powerful algorithms. For you to fully appreciate my story, I need to walk you back through my personal experiences in building my own brand. Like many new startup ventures, the Abbott Speaks program operates on the hard work, diligent research, and strategic vision of one individual. I don't say this boastfully. This is the reality of any entrepreneurial venture. I do this knowing that a whopping 80% of startups crash and burn, at least according to Bloomberg research. I share this to call your attention to the passion and dedication that must go into any successful venture. Most startups do not reach profitability for years, and I'm no different. I have no revenues in my platform. I've not caught my break, and I operate without the assistance of any coworkers or employees. I'd have no ability to pay them. To pursue my vision of sharing a new perspective on culture, I wrote somewhere around 40 unique articles last year, the majority of which I converted into 10 to 15-minute podcasts. Even though each article took roughly a week to complete, I have to admit, I was actually pretty pleased with my performance last year. As much as I love researching, as much as I love developing unique content, thinking, podcasting, I can only turn my attention to this passion of mine after I have fulfilled my obligations as a husband, my obligations as a father of young children, my obligations as a friend, and my obligations as a corporate manager in my actual 9-to-5 day job. 
for all the articles I was able to complete, my placement rate was pretty low in 2017. I'm not a syndicated columnist, so when I was fortunate enough to get a placement, I was ecstatic at the chance of being able to share it with my Facebook community. I have a very small footprint, but it is 2,500 people, and I don't take any of you for granted. When my hard work produces fruit, these are the people I want to be the first to know. My first example is of an article in which I was fortunate enough to have placed called Four Reasons Why We Need a Parental Makeover. I remember this piece vividly because I went back and forth a couple rounds with a professional colleague before receiving the placement. When it was placed, I posted a link to this uniquely generated content on my own personal Facebook page. The date was September 15th. For all of my diligent efforts, my piece was shared with a paltry 6% of people following my page. The following day, I wrote a quick comment about a story posted on CNN, talking about why we need to abolish the Electoral College. The comment that I wrote took me all of a minute to write, and I linked the CNN article to my own personal Facebook feed. Well, apparently the great Facebook algorithms were pleased with my sharing of a more preferred content resource because that CNN post that I didn't write was shared with close to 20% of my Facebook followers or three times as many people as the content I generated on my own. I want to make sure I get the terminology right. I said placed. What I'm talking about are total page impressions. This is when Facebook's algorithm decides to place what I've posted on somebody's wall. So when I say 6%, that means Facebook's algorithm placed my organically created content on one of my followers' walls 6% of the time. Linking a brief one-minute comment to another story, however, resulted in a Facebook page impression on my friend's walls 20% of the time. That's what I'm talking about. The following month, I published a podcast entitled On Timing and Obedience. For reasons I'll never understand, the podcast actually appeased the algorithm to a bit of a greater extent than the written article, and over 17% of my audience was exposed to my uniquely generated content. The following day, I added a comment to a Daily Signal article about a pediatrician rejecting the prevailing transgender narrative. The one minute that I spent commenting about the transgender story was heralded by the Facebook algorithms. Whereas the time and energy invested into this unique content earned me the impressions of 17% of my audience, nearly 70% of my audience was exposed to what amounted to one soundbite on the Daily Signal piece. On October 31st, I made a quick remark on a story about a new Netflix series called Big Mouth. The following day, I posted my own unique podcast content entitled Uncovering Tactics That Produce Fake News. My 30-second quip on Netflix outperformed my own self-generated content at a ratio of 3.5 to 1. Finally, and this one takes the cake, Hillsong pastor Carl Lentz made headlines in November when he refused to say that abortion was a sin. I made a comment on my Facebook page lamenting the state of Christian leadership considering his status as a big name in 21st century Christianity. Three days later, I published an Abbott Speaks podcast entitled Diversity, the Proverbial Falling Tree in the Forest. My trivial comment on the Carl Lentz article outperformed my own self-developed content at a rate of 5.2 to 1. 
whereas I was only able to reach 9% of my audience with my own podcast. The Lentz comments earned me the exposure of nearly 55% of my Facebook following. Facebook's algorithms punish Abbott Speaks because it's not a seasoned website. Therefore, it is distrusted by the artificial intelligence. And the proof is in the numbers. Of course I can't compete with a national company like CNN. My pages are not cross-referenced or linked by millions of people. So Facebook assumes the content is simply not worth anyone's time. Even after my followers have specifically told Facebook, I'm interested in what Abbott Speaks has to say. That's why I refer to myself as one of Mark Zuckerberg's virtual sims. I'm completely at the mercy of the Facebook algorithms when producing unique, independent, thoughtful commentary that I believe could actually heal the culture. If the algorithms could talk, this is what they would say. In the best interest of the Facebook community, it's the back of the line for you, pal. Bottom of the stack. The only way I could get my content back to the top of your feed is to pay Facebook to promote my content. It's as if the algorithm is a virtual bouncer telling me that my name's simply not on the list. But show me a little green and I can let you in. The only way I can compete on Facebook would feature a gradual draining of my bank account to cover advertising expenses. Money that I don't have because I'm not profitable, at least on this venture. I'm entering the game at a substantial competitive disadvantage. My unique content is being withheld from the people who have specifically requested to receive my updates. I'm not grieving my omission from those who don't follow me. I'm grieving my exclusion from those who do. I did use Facebook as an advertising platform for the latter part of 2017. That's actually why I have close to 2,500 followers on my page. But after spending months researching Facebook's aggregate contributions to American culture, I can no longer financially support a company that is not only hostile to my values, but hostile to the general welfare of the American public. I'd now like to slow the train as we pull into our third station on this tour through how Facebook automates thought. Social media stifles originality and promotes groupthink. Facebook's algorithm is strongly encouraging, strongly incentivizing me to abandon any efforts to develop my own unique content, my own ability to think critically. Why waste my time doing that when I can reduce my workload over 99% and just add a clever comment to a story that somebody else has written? From the world's perspective, aren't I a fool for not abandoning all efforts to generate original content? Yet if I were to do that, I'd stop engaging in critical and original thought. I represent the voice that Facebook's algorithm has determined to be of no use to you. Now, how many such voices will you never hear because of the selective editing or the filter bubble that Facebook applies to your life? My original content featured in-depth thought and research, while linking to a third-party story from a preferred website required hardly even a thought. As more and more people are incentivized to simply comment and link to algorithmically preferred content, these stories gradually become perceived as the mainstream opinion of the American people. I'd like you to take a little time today to just let that cycle ruminate in your brain. 
I need your attention now because this is a critical point I'm about to unveil. Facebook's artificial intelligence incentivizes all of us to regurgitate the preferred content of an automated decision-making mechanism. We have a substantial minority of people technologically engineering public opinion and reinforcing this concocted narrative through the countless filter bubbles being applied to every American owning a Facebook or Twitter account. Does this not fully explain the results of the 2016 presidential election? The media still can't bring themselves to accept these results because of how strong their connection is to the automated decision-making process. All things that do not exist outside of their own filter bubbles do not exist. This is very deep content that I'm sharing with you. If you can wrap your head around this process, you will see our people, our country, and even the world in an entire new light. When you immerse yourself in the content that social media wants to direct your attention, it's pretty easy to be pessimistic and down on the future of this country, isn't it? Now juxtapose social media's portrayal of American culture with your own personal experience in the workplace, at the mall, in a restaurant. I engage amicably with countless people whose political beliefs and worldviews are diametrically opposed to my own. I love interacting with them. We rarely, if ever, quarrel with each other. And you know what? I'm guessing your experience is exactly the same. But rather than forming conclusions based on our actual experiences, we're shaping our perspective using our virtual encounters. Now, I'm not naive. I know that we live in a world filled with problems. What I'm saying is that we are in process of automating how we obtain information and how we formulate our collective opinion as a society. We're prioritizing the perspectives of industry elites and media talking heads who constantly demonstrate a greater degree of concern for themselves and their own empires than for the American people at large. By outsourcing our mental power to the digital power of an algorithm, we are abandoning our civic responsibility to critically consider potential solutions that are not unduly influenced. But since we've embraced the narrative, we've become the Sims. We spend more time focusing on our differences and disagreements instead of attempting to tackle these problems by coming together as a people. Healthy dialogue never features lobbing verbal bombs at each other to score points with your own supporters. But you know what does reward that type of behavior? Facebook and Twitter. They'll flood you with likes, shares, and follows for that. The more angry, the more frustrated their user base becomes, the higher the profit margins, the more time spent on the platform, and the faster their businesses grow. Why do you think the comments that I made, the one-minute remarks I made about Carl Lentz or about the transgender ideology, why do you think those perform best? They probably got the best rage out of people, didn't they? You know what? I'm going to give you some bonus content today because I need to illustrate this point for you. I promise to do this shortly, but just for now, remember, in order to repair American culture, we need to find a means of promoting unity and civility. In order to help social media thrive, we simply need to continue pursuing division and vulgarity at every turn.
I find it interesting that two of the big pushes in the world of media and academia are diversity and privilege. Mark Zuckerberg's political viewpoints are sympathetic to both of these messages. But what do we have? What, six news outlets in this country? I've just shown you how Facebook suppresses new voices in the marketplace. So with respect to privilege, can we talk a little bit about the influence privilege here? If you're CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, or any of the major networks, you get the velvet rope treatment. But if you aren't in the good graces of the mainstream, you're not worth anyone's time of day? In March of 2017, Mark Zuckerberg traveled to the historically black University of North Carolina a and to give a lecture about the virtues of diversity. That's rich. I'm not even going to waste your time by quoting any of what the garbage was that he said. What I will do is highlight a picture of the Facebook newsfeed and engineering team published in Slate magazine in early 2016. The picture shows a team of eight employees. For a company so high on diversity and inclusion, it's a bit curious that none of them were women, none of them were black, and none of them appeared over the age of 40. This is the diversity and experience of the gatekeepers of the Facebook newsfeed. It's not really surprising that they would use an illustration of a husband ordering dinner for his wife as an example of how their algorithms work. Perhaps the woman was simply incapable of ordering the meal for herself. Now, if I had the mind of a secular humanist who's constantly fixated on dividing the American people, you know what I might say? Leave it to a group of eight men to use a chauvinistic illustration to explain how social media really works. Now, let me again recap the three steps of our train ride through the world of automated thought. Social media creates echo chambers. Social media commoditizes people. And social media stifles creativity and promotes groupthink. These algorithms have grave consequences, but since social media has redefined basic human exchange, we can't even fathom living in a world without these lines of communication. Our youngest generations almost exclusively engage with each other using some form of device. Guys, we're in pretty big trouble. But this is what happens when the majority of American people outsource their minds and their civic responsibilities to what amounts to artificial intelligence. In episode two, I told you that Facebook's number one priority was to create an addiction for its product. Today, I want to support this comment by thoroughly explaining that Facebook's algorithm is programmed to entice you to prolong the amount of time you spend on their site. Why else would it reward those links featuring the greatest amount of time investment? Artificial intelligence. At least they got the name right. It's artificial. It's fake. Counterfeit. Phony. It doesn't have to be this way. Although we have reached the end of the line, I have added a bonus stop to our route. This is the end of the Facebook line, but our train continues on to make one final stop through the land of YouTube. There is a fourth consequence you need to appreciate regarding social media's ability to automate the human mind. And I briefly alluded to it when I explained how social media profits off of our anger and frustration. Let me bring this point to light. Have you ever watched a video on YouTube? 
I'm guessing you have. If so, you're probably familiar with the company's delivery format of perpetually auto-playing content upon the completion of each video. This configuration is reflective of YouTube's algorithm that places a high premium on time spent on the platform. Have you ever paid attention to the quality of videos that simply autoplay when you finish watching the clip you initially intended to watch? I figured I'd try an experiment. I'm not a fan of socialism, so I don't really have any browsing history on Senator Bernie Sanders. However, for academic purposes, I simply typed Bernie Sanders into a YouTube search. My first hit actually was a culturally relevant piece because there was actually a town hall event in which he was participating the day of my search, and he was discussing inequality in America with Senator Elizabeth Warren and documentary film producer Michael Moore. After completing the video, one of the suggested autoplay videos was titled, Sanders Gets Into Argument with Business Owner. After watching that clip, the next video scheduled to autoplay was titled, Cancer Patient to Ted Cruz, I'm Alive Because of Obamacare. After watching that video, the next video set to autoplay was titled, Representative MacArthur Faces Enraged Husband Over Healthcare Bill. After watching that clip, the next video set to autoplay was titled, Anger Erupts at Fiery GOP Town Halls. After watching that clip, the video in the autoplay on deck circle was titled, Town Halls Erupt in Anger Over Obamacare Repeal. Anger. Rage. Discontent. Translates to hours, minutes, and seconds spent on YouTube. And that translates to advertising revenues, doesn't it? Let me move away from the political realm. One of YouTube's surging demographics in terms of content consumption is children. In October 2015, the top 20 children's YouTube channels had more than 5.2 billion views. That's just the top 20, and that's just one calendar month. How does YouTube's algorithm engage when presenting content before the impressionable eyes of children? I have two young children, so I do think it's fair for me to perform the same experiment on that which I ran with my Bernie Sanders query. Now, I am a little dated in my knowledge of kids' television, so I just typed SpongeBob SquarePants into a YouTube search. One of my first hits, a clip entitled Top 10 Times SpongeBob SquarePants went too far. After watching this clip, the autoplay on deck circle featured a video entitled 10 Saddest Cartoon Episodes. After finishing that one, YouTube automatically played 10 animated movie deaths no one saw coming. This is YouTube's algorithm in action. They want to stimulate the same parts of your brain that engage when you see a car accident on the side of the road. The content that performs best on their site is the content that acts as a virtual dumpster fire. YouTube, just like television, provides all of the rush of a dangerous encounter without any of the risk of being harmed in the process. And why do they elevate this content to the top of user feeds? Is it because it's the best quality content that will exercise, replenish, and grow your mind? Of course not. It is because this is the content that causes you to remain on their site well beyond your initial plan to watch a simple five-minute video. Anyone who has spent time on YouTube can resonate with the reality of coming to YouTube to watch one clip and leaving after watching anywhere between 10 and 20 videos. 
Whether they have the captive attention of an adult or a child, their content delivery is clear. How do we maximize our ad revenues? That's all YouTube cares about. The fourth and final stop, the bonus stop, if you will, on today's tour through the world of thought automation shows us that social media numbs your senses. It preys on some of humanity's most noble virtues, attributes like compassion, concern, curiosity, and then it exploits them to ultimately desensitize us as human beings. This is a major reason why bystander apathy is such a huge problem in the United States of America. We're desensitized as a people. While you gather your personal belongings, I'd like to share one final point about the perils of thought automation. If this analogy doesn't inspire you to at least make some adjustments to your media behavioral patterns, I'm not sure what will. Much of the enthusiasm in the world of transportation development centers around the idea of the self-driving car. The promises of this innovation include fewer accidents, decreased traffic congestion, lower fuel consumption, enhanced human productivity, improved mobility for the elderly, and the elimination of traffic enforcement, just to name a few. All we need to do is automate the process, remove the human element, and we can have all these benefits and more. Joshua Brown is a man who was so excited about the promises of the self-driving car that he partook in the testing of new technology. He was driving in a Tesla self-operating car on autopilot, and he was so convinced of his own personal safety and the merits of the innovation that he was supporting that he laid back, relaxed, and turned on the television while driving. Since he was going to be in the vehicle for a while, he figured a good way to pass the time would be to slide one of the Harry Potter movies into his portable DVD player. Not long into his commute, the car's sensor system allegedly failed to distinguish a large 18-wheel truck and trailer crossing the highway. The self-driving car attempted to drive full speed under the trailer, but the top of the vehicle was torn off by the force of the collision. Brown was dead upon impact. This is the culmination of the automated thought process. You may feel entertained. You may feel educated. You may feel informed. You may indeed still be alive. But you're losing what it means to be a human being. You're losing your emotion, your sympathy, your ability to reason. And for what? Do you think Google, Facebook, Twitter, or any of the other social media players care about your personal growth and development? Let me illustrate how these companies probably look at you by using the words of Elon Musk following this deadly crash in Wilmington, Florida. In an official public statement, Musk, or most likely his public relations representative, wrote this, quote, we learned yesterday evening that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is opening a preliminary evaluation into the performance of autopilot during a recent fatal crash that occurred in a Model S. This is the first known fatality in just over 130 million miles where autopilot was activated. Among all vehicles in the U.S., there's a fatality every 94 million miles, and worldwide there's a fatality approximately every 60 million miles. Folks, that's his opening excerpt, his opening statement. Rather than focusing on the tragedy of a life lost, 
Musk is doubling down on his message that the self-driving car is the wave of the future. Is this really the time for that? A man loses his life. And Musk's first instinct is to explain that the self-driving car is twice as safe as its human-controlled counterpart? As I said a couple installments ago, secular humanists always double down. Does anyone honestly Please, strip your politics from your intellect here just for a second. Does anyone honestly believe Facebook, after everything I have taught you, prioritizes the welfare of the American public over the expansion of their own digital empire? Mark Zuckerberg has created a virtual framework that is subject to severe exploitation. And this framework poses a grave threat to our long-term prosperity. Jack Dorsey's done the same thing with Twitter. The only thing necessary for the framework to be exploited would be for it to be delivered into the hands of a few men who have relaxed their personal ethical standards. A few men who have succumbed to the seductive idea that their opinions and their solutions are simply more important than their fellow man. My friends, we're already there. The framework is in place. A culture devoid of ethics is in place. It's only a matter of time. Facebook's algorithms determine what each and every one of us sees on a daily basis. Both Facebook and Twitter rely on you outsourcing your thought and abandoning your responsibility to think critically. How does it accomplish this? Social media creates echo chambers. Social media commoditizes people. Social media stifles creativity and promotes groupthink. Social media numbs your senses. This now concludes the social media express line to the death of independent thought. And this is exactly what I'm referring to by titling the fifth installment of this series, Social Media Automates Thought. You are not a head of cattle. You are not a lab rat. You are a divinely created masterpiece who was made in the image and likeness of God. As much as our culture rejects that idea, I want to encourage you, embrace your God-given identity and break out of this social media labyrinth. You owe it to yourself, your family, your community, and your country. I began tonight's program by talking about The Sims. This is a harsh analogy, and I stand by every word I said. With increasing frequency, we are embracing the role of the lemming. If this is how we as a culture, choose to live out this magical experience that we all call life, we truly deserve to be controlled by our overlords. This is one-sixth of my argument. And this now completes five-sixths of my support for why social media represents the gravest threat to American culture. This is the first time in my brief history of podcasting that I've ever felt the need to just simply go to commercial. Uh, the mood in the room tonight is heavy. I acknowledge that. But I'm not going to go to commercial because I don't want to commercialize this program. I'm very proud of the content that I bring you. I'm thankful that you're listening to it. I hope you're enjoying it. I know I've dampered your spirits a little bit with installment number five of our social media series. But guys, my job is to speak truth. Truth doesn't have an agenda and it doesn't really care about your feelings. But what I can do is brighten the mood a bit by returning to our list of the top 10 songs you've never heard of. We have reached number seven on our countdown, 
and I want to bring you an innocent and energetic song that hit the airwaves in the summer of 2010. This up-tempo song features lyrics describing a woman blissfully awakening to a day of limitless potential. After sharing time with her special someone on an electrifying car ride, not of the self-driving variety, I presume, she closes her day with the words, Looking out at the universe, I thank the stars and the heavens for you. If you like upbeat music, and if you like just a sprinkle of influence from the 1980s, you are going to love the seventh best song you've never heard of. Here's the British artist Goldfrapp with a song entitled Alive, the third track off of her fifth studio album. I woke up with the rising sun, I was blinded by the light. Jump up and pull on my jeans, it feels good, they're a little tight. Step out in a crazy world, but then the sun resets your mind. Feel the weight of it all just drift off on a cloud to another time. that track i strongly encourage you to pick up the album it was very challenging for me to decide between one of three tracks again that's gold frap with the song alive i was torn between alive head first and rocket all of which are on the album entitled head first rocket is a phenomenal song but there's a lot of symbolism in my selection i've chosen alive because i want you to live your life and be alive liberate yourself enjoy the song pick up the cd you're gonna love it it's all feel good uplifting up tempo music thank you for joining me for the fifth installment of our social media series until our next encounter be bold with your faith strong in your convictions and courageous in the workplace Facebook's artificial intelligence incentivizes all of us to regurgitate the preferred content of an automated decision-making mechanism. We have a substantial minority of people technologically engineering public opinion and reinforcing this concocted narrative through the countless filter bubbles being applied to every American owning a Facebook or Twitter account.